Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you recordings from the audio archives. This is the fifth of eight installments, in chronological order, spanning the years 1995 through to 1999, and all focusing on the Maybrick Diary. The main purpose of these releases is to save and preserve by sharing in digital format Ripper-related recordings originally made on cassette that over the many years are now quickly deteriorating. The following sound recording we bring to you is Paul Feldman on BBC Radio Merseyside, which aired on the 11th and 18th of October 1995. here, and since Mike Barrett, the one-time Liverpool scrap metal merchant, first claimed he'd faked the so-called James Maybrick Jack the Ripper diary, and then denied it, events have moved fast. His former wife, Anne, now Anne Graham, has admitted that in fact she knew of the existence of the remarkable manuscript for many years, a manuscript claimed to have been written by the Victorian murder victim of 1889, James Maybrick, in which he confessed that he was actually Jack the Ripper. She told us that the diary had been in her father's family for years, that she'd kept it from her husband, but then asked a man named Tony Devereux to pass it on to her husband, and that she is actually the great-great-granddaughter of Florence Maybrick, who was convicted of her husband James Maybrick's murder. Well, now the sensational story is about to take another twist, thanks to the efforts of Paul Feldman. Mr. Feldman is a London-based film and video producer. One of his films was the story of the Cray Twins, but he became involved in the Ripper Diary mystery and has become completely sold on it, and he's spent a fortune in research. He's bought the video rights, and he's also involved with a major feature film which is being planned, and he's uncovered even more evidence that the fascinating diary really is genuine. My interest um, in, in, in the... Maybrick uh, diary began during um, around about August 92 maybe a little earlier I was actually working on a Jack the Ripper documentary I was following the belief that MJ Druitt um, was Jack the Ripper he seemed to me of the known suspects to be the most likely I always believed that the Ripper was indeed um, a gentleman I did not believe um he was from a local, he was one of the local um, EastEnders, primarily because whoever killed Mary Kelly um, was allowed in her room and she serenaded him for some considerable time, something which I don't feel from what I've learnt about uh, Mary Kelly and, and the way that prostitutes used to operate in those days. They wouldn't generally have invited men back who weren't gentlemen. That was primarily my reason for forgery it because of the known suspects he was he was the only gentleman. Um, during the period of my research I was working with the authors of the A to Z uh, Paul Beck and Keith Skinner Martin Fido and it leaked uh, not by them, but it was leaked to me that the diary had been found in Liverpool, purported to have been written by Jack the Ripper. Um, Did I you know anything of the Maybrick story at that I time? Had, I knew absolutely nothing about the Maybrick story, and, and I confess that my interest in Jack the Ripper wasn't because of the crimes, but because they were unsolved. I've always had an in interest in unsolved mysteries, uh, but Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe, and, and of course Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Um, my interest in history, um, I don't think I got my O-level, quite frankly, I think I failed that. 
Um, so my interest in history was, was very poor, um, although it has somewhat increased dramatically over the last few years. Um, I, was, I had no interest in, I didn't even know who Maybrick was, uh, embarrassingly enough. I don't live in Liverpool, um, and therefore it wasn't a local story. Uh, so I was told about a diary. I did not know who wrote it. Um, and I was working with the boys from the A to Z, as I said. Much to their credit, whilst they did not believe the diary at that stage, any of them, they, they thought it was a lot of nonsense, um, I didn't even bother to dig any further because I just didn't, I thought it was too good to be true. Yes. I think that's an important phrase, too good to be true, because I think that that is the main reason why people don't accept this. Yeah. That it's too good to be true. But there comes a point where, when you have it, when you have investigated all the possibilities, and there were only three, there were only three possibilities. One was that it was genuine. Two was that it was a contemporary, an old forgery, and three was that it was a modern forgery. And according to the historical evidence written sometime after 1989 because it had references to a, a report found by a doctor bond um, that were in the diary which suggested that the diary had to have been written after 1989 otherwise the inclusion of the information was quite extraordinary there was also information in the diary that, that, that could have only been known after 1987 um, so that looked like and that seemed to be the consensus of opinion by historians. Yes. What I picked up very quickly was that the scientists that examined it were saying quite the opposite, that this was old, that it was tens of decades old, that the, it was Victorian ink. The argument against it being Victorian ink was one gentleman said, well, you can just go out and buy a bottle of Victorian ink around the corner. Well, you can't. I indeed challenged that gentleman to do just that. And I asked him to produce one sheet of paper um, written with a Victorian ink that would be processed with the same test that the diary had. Um, and if he could pass the test, then I would accept the possibility that this wasn't old, as it appeared to be. I was then told that the diary should undergo ESDA test. Now, I don't even know what ESDA meant, but it's some sort of electro-scanning device. Um, and uh, this was taken on by the Americans. And apparently, it, it is a device that indicates whether there is any pressure on paper. In other words, if you write anything on a piece of paper today, you will look at that paper closely, and you'll see there's indentation marks. Well, after a period of time, those indentation marks vanish. And, of course, the diary didn't fail those tests. It passed them. We were then suggested that it should take an ion migration test. Now, what the hell ion migrations are to me and most of our listeners, I would imagine, um, it, it, God knows what. But apparently there are ions, that is I-O-N-S, I-O-N-S in ink, which over a period of time transfer from ink to paper. It takes years for this process to take place. And it was suggested we did that. And from that, a conclusion was reached by the Americans quite flippantly, and they did their test quite quickly. But the conclusion was this is a diary, uh, this is a fake, because it is written in 1920 plus or minus 12 years. Now, plus or minus 12 years put it at 1909 to 1931. Or 1932, if my arithmetic was any better. Oh. Um, but that wasn't me, because according to the historians, that was impossible. And indeed, Martin Fido quoted at the time, the scientists have given us a historically impossible date. So all of a sudden, we had this battle going on, where the scientists were saying it was old, and the historians were saying it was new. I got on to the doctor that conducted the tests, the ion migration tests, and as it had been put to me, well, you can, you can make the ions transfer from the ink to the paper quicker by baking it, putting it in an oven. And I'm sure many of you have heard this, this excuse about the diary. But it is precisely that. It is waffle. Because how do you know what temperature it should be? 
how long should you cook it for? Um, even this doctor couldn't answer that. He said, well, I don't know. Um, at what temperature do you make it 50 years old or 60 years old? Now, the process is very simple. They count the amount of ions that have been transferred, and they compare it to other documents of the known age. Now, depending on the size of the sample they use, depends on how accurate they can be with their data. And certainly, we were only at 1909, just 20 years away from it possibly being genuine. The scientific evidence suggested very strongly that this was old, and that was then supported when the work on the watch had been done. Two eminent scientists, Dr. Turgoose of UMIST in Manchester and Dr. Wilde of Bristol University, both concluded that within the back of the watch, where there were scratches, that there was um, a metal that had been and from the oxidization, it was over a hundred years old, or tens of decades, I think, for their phrase. But it was old. Now, that gave the historians an immense problem. Because had this been old, it would have included the initials of two other victims that were then believed to have been killed by the Ripper. And it was only later that we knew they weren't. And so what do we get is we got this conflict between the historians and the scientists. I looked at it and said, I think they're both right. But of your three possibilities, it can't be a modern forgery because the scientists said so. It can't be a contemporary forgery because the histori historian said so. And therefore, as was once said by Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle, excuse me, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever you are left with, however improbable, must be the truth. Well, to find summary of the forensic experimentation and examination of both the diaries, the ink, the paper, the handwriting also has been fully explored, and also of the watch. But you took it further, and you conducted an interview with Billy Graham. Billy Graham being the father of Anne Barrett Graham and got startling evidence from him. What did he say? Well, I think it's important to give you a little piece of background. Anne Graham is, is, is the wife of Mike Barrett. Mike Barrett was a man that came forward with the diary. At the time, everybody knows, all he said was, I got it from a man called Tony Devereux. That's all I know, and that's all I can tell you. I believe it to be true, but that's where I got it from. I can't tell you any more than that. Anne Graham is the maiden name of Mike Barrett, his wife. And they divorced um, in January 94. I felt very strongly, having once believed that the diary may have been found in Battle Priest House recently, because I knew work had been done there, I had gone down certain routes to discover that my theory was wrong. I was totally wrong. Battle Priest House being the Yeah. And I had a strong feeling that if this artifact um, was there, was genuine. It must be there because of family. And the reason I just thought that was this. This couldn't be a forgery by the people that we were talking to. Anne is one of the most intelligent women I've ever met. Um, Mike, unfortunately, was going through a, a, a lot of problems um, with alcohol. But for this to be a modern forgery, saying it's a forgery, people have got to understand something. What does that mean? It means that this person knows more about Ripper, Murders and Maybrick than anybody else. They've been dead lucky that none of the dates clash. They know all about Victorian language because not only is it word perfect Victorian language, but the one phrase that was criticised, one off, proved the Oxford English Dictionary wrong. They know all about metallurgy because they must somehow be associated with the, uh, with the watch if it's a fake. And therefore they've somehow implanted this bit of oxidised metal in there. That sounds, I mean, to me this is absolute fantasy. And not only that, they know all about um, ion migration. They know all about... And it's, I just think this is fairy tale. So I believe that this was through Mike or Anne's family 
I was therefore asking a lot of questions about backgrounds. I found a lot of extraordinary things um, and a lot of extraordinary coincidences by reading up on Maybrick. I knew that most of what had been written on the Ripper had been written, but on Maybrick very little had been written. I sent people all around the world collecting research from places like Wyoming University. All around the world, really? All around the world. We have, indeed, we went to Wyoming University where we knew a collection of Maybrick material existed. No one, we have determined, had ever taken that in the last ten years. We wanted to get over that because that got over the modern forgery element. And we discovered in this documentation that Maybrick did like to be called Sir James. In the diary, he says, I much prefer Sir Jim. It was little things, little bits of detail. Also, if you read about books about Maybrick, you'll find that it was his son that was ill. But in the diary, it said his daughter was ill. And we found letters proving that Gladys was indeed a very sick child and permanently ill. I think the key was that on page 228 of a book called This Friendless Lady, written by Nigel Morland, the following set is written about Florence after she comes out of prison. In January of that year, she was moved from Earlsby Prison to the House of the Epiphany on the banks of the Fowl in Cornwall, where, as Mrs. Graham, she was to try to regain some of her former health and strength. Now that reference was found by one of my researchers, Keith Skinner, who worked on the A to Z. I remember him faxing it to me with exclamation marks all around it, what the hell is this? We wondered whether the author had been confused because we did know that one of the family names was Ingraham. But we checked the source of his and sure enough, she did call herself Graham. So we had the extraordinary coincidence that Anne maiden name and a name that Florence used in 1904 were identical. I was pushing a lot of people about and I was making a lot of people's lives misery, I'll admit that. And one day I know I upset Mike Barrett's sister and Mike Barrett's sister got on the phone to Anne and complained about my constant nosing about, let's put it that way. And Anne I think felt guilty. There's one thing hiding things or not telling the truth or not, not telling she didn't lie what Anne did was just keep quiet to Mike that was one thing but whilst she's divorced and Mike Barrett's family were coming under pressure from me I think it was a little bit of guilt so she phoned me up my home and she screamed who do you think you are blah, 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 blah. I said I'll tell you I pay for the rights for this I didn't ask for it to be published and I am going to get to the bottom of this. Cut a long story short, we had a four-hour conversation, and I won't repeat it all, but basically I suggested to Anne that I had found things that connected her family to this document. Anne asked her father, who was very sick, very ill, and indeed died just three months after all this happened, whether he would see me, and much to her surprise, he agreed to. Much of what you may read is, is, is not true. It was not Anne that told me anything. I went to meet this wonderful man, wonderful gentleman. He'd um, fought in the war for 13 years. He'd um, real Liverpudlian. He loved his football and his sport and everything else. And he shook hands with me and he sat down next to me on the city and he said I don't know from what I'm about to tell you anyway I had a feeling at the time I don't know why I, I was questioning him on the basis that he was a descendant of James Maybrick and the reason that that was my thought process was I didn't believe anyone would be ashamed to be associated with Florence what I didn't know then was at that point Anne knew that there was a connection to the nurse at Battle Crease and privately, although they had not come out and said so, privately thought that maybe the diary had been nicked out of Battle Crease. Anne had thought this privately. Anne thought that privately. As Billy was talking, he suddenly said, when I asked him why the diary was in the family, he said, perhaps it's because my father was the illegitimate son of Florence. 
and she fell pregnant with him when she was 15 and gave birth when she was 16. The, the text I have and will be publishing in a book, but as near as damn it, I've repeated him word for word. And you've got this on tape too, I believe. It's on cassette, yes. Anne, at that point, stood up and screamed at her father. Who told you that? And it was clear, and it suddenly, the penny dropped. She didn't know. All she knew was it was in the family. She saw it in 1968. She couldn't really tell you any more than that, other than that her father told her he was given it at Christmas 1950. A second interview with Billy confirmed that he first saw it in 1943, although at that time his father was alive and therefore would have belonged to him. He was given it by his stepmother at Christmas of 1950. His father, indeed, had died in January 1950. So, I was stunned. It wasn't the relationship that I expected. But moreover, I knew her father was born, uh, her grandfather was born in 1879. Now, according to the history books, Florence came to this country in 1880. And so... As I came out, whilst being a bit apprehensive, I realised why had Billy spoken to me. He knew he was dying and it cottoned on. Mike had made this ridiculous statement in the Liverpool Post. If one goes back and reads their copy again, they will see that Anne, when confronted by Harold Brough, immediately said, I will fight tooth and nail to protect my family. And she also said, He's just trying to get back at me. Now, if Mike Barrett had written a diary, what's it got to do with Anne? And why would she have made those comments? She knew, and no one read between the lines. If everyone looks at the retraction made by Richard Bart Jones, charming solicitor who I've met, and has been extremely helpful as much as he can be, he said the next day a statement, and everyone overlooked this statement, and the Sunday Times were so biased they wouldn't even be prepared to um, print it. They were quite prepared to print Mike's confession, which, as I know you've all heard, was made after two bottles of whiskey. But the very next day, Solicitor said, not without, not on his uh, client's behalf, but off his own back, that his client lied, and that he had evidence that he lied. Now, no Solicitor would make a statement like that unless they were justified in doing so, and not a solicitor like Richard Bart Jones and of a wonderful firm like Moorcroft Garnets. Now, to me, that was saying our solicitor was telling us, his solicitor was telling us, was telling the world in the best way he could, this is genuine. I can't tell you why, I can't tell you how, but take the notice of my client. He wouldn't have made the statement otherwise. He's a very, very well thought of man. When I got this from Billy, I thought to myself, oh Christ, I've got a real problem here. She didn't come to England until 1880. Wrong. And I also realised that if Billy had not been telling the truth, he has just destroyed his daughter's credibility forever. The one thing he was trying to protect. Bingo. Florence Maybrick most certainly was in England in 1879. We have three separate references to that effect. By, by references, you're talking about newspaper, re references, newspaper, newspaper references. Yes, and, and there's a sworn statement by a man called John Bailey Knight. Um, we know she was in England in 1879. Moreover, and this will surprise, and I will read it out for the first time on this station, um, but there is an article in the Liverpool Echo, one can check the source, Friday, August the 9th, 1889, page 4, for a matter of detail. It's headlined, Mrs. Maybrick's Childhood. Residents at Kempsey, near Worcester, recollect that 20 years ago, Mrs. Maybrick, then a little girl, lived at the vineyards there with her sister and her mother, Madame du Barry, which is what her name was at the time. A German governess educated the children. The mother is described as a fine, handsome woman in good company. The house was nearly always full of visitors. 
After a residence of about two years, the family suddenly left. Local friends have since visited Madame under the more recent title of the Baroness von Rock. Florence Maybrick indeed was not brought up in America, which is something that our researchers discovered and never been known. She spent her entire life in Europe and England being educated. She returned to America on occasions, but only for a holiday. She was always educated in Europe and England. So it's all a myth that she met Maybrick on no, the she cross met, No, she met Maybrick. Transatlantic she met Maybrick um, coming over in 1880 on, on the boat, as was said, but she was simply coming back. She was just coming back. It wasn't her first visit to Europe. The young debutante has been promulgated as part of her defence, this innocent absolutely. young absolutely heiress. That's absolutely correct. So there was much more to Florence. Perhaps she was a more, oh, a more experienced lady then. Well, I don't think there's, I think there's very little doubt about that. Um, I have no doubts that the, um, that, that, that the provenance of the diary, and I have absolutely no doubt that Anne is indeed the great-granddaughter of, of, of Florence Maybrick. Um, I think that when we publish our book and people see the photographic evidence of Anne's grandfather, which I know you've seen, yeah. um, Anne's grandfather and Florence in older age, and when they see the picture of Anne's aunt, uh, who is still alive, um, and compare her to Florence, it is quite extraordinary. Now, you've actually tracked down a number of members of the Maybrick family, I think. Well, I've just told you about the Chandler family, uh, i.e. Florence's illegitimate descendants. The Chandler family? Well, Florence's maiden name is Chandler. Um, I've told you about um, the illegitimate Chandler um, descendants, but we picked up... The Grahams, too. Uh, well, the, the, that's a name, obviously, it, it was a, almost a pseudonym, because we know Florence used the name Graham, and that is Billy Graham. But Florence's real maiden name was Chandler. She should have called herself Florence Chandler, but she didn't. She called herself Florence Graham. Sure. So, so there are several lines of descendants then, Chandler's and Graham's? No, 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 it's the same line. All I'm saying is that she used the name Graham. Yes. But she wasn't really a Graham. Indeed, yes, but there is obviously a Graham line. Oh, yeah, and, oh, and absolutely, her father, absolutely and right. presumably well, the his father. That, that, that's correct. What we have also worked, what we worked on very, very hard, because we actually thought it would be the line that would, let, um, that would tell us the truth, is that we discovered in a book written by Mr. McDougall in 1891 that there were indeed at least five illegitimate children born to James Maybrick. Um, it isn't clear whether it is with one woman or, or, or more than one woman, um, but there are, are at least five of which Florence Maybrick knew of them. In fact, it was the very discovery of the illegitimate children that caused Florence to move out of the bedroom in 18, late in 1887. Um, it was discovery of them that led to an argument, discovery of the mistress. He, she asked him to give the mistress up. He wouldn't. In those days, he couldn't. He would have been seen to be a real wimp. Um, but she wasn't, she didn't like the Victorian way, she, so she moved out of the bedroom and didn't move back into the bedroom until after Grand National in 1889. We're, that's actually documented. Now, those five illegitimate children interested us because they weren't registered under the name of Maybrick. But we got every single birth, death and marriage certificate of anybody with the name of Maybrick over the last two centuries. We, I have them and I own them. And we tracked down the illegitimate descendants of James Maybrick with Sarah Robertson. Those people are alive. I will not say where they are living. I do not intend to do that at this stage and will not do so unless um, they want me to. But they are alive and well. And, I and you've have, met them all and spoken to them I have them met all. them all. I have spoken to them all. We have photographs of them all. Indeed, I've shown you them Indeed. to you. Um, the people are wonderful people. Um, and, and Annie Maybrick, who, who is the eldest, uh, is, is 80 years old. In fact, I went to, to her 80th birthday party. And quite aware of their notorious ancestor. Oh, absolutely. This 
came as absolutely no surprise to them and to quote one of them which we have videoed um, says that uh, this is absolutely consistent with what, with what they had always believed <laughs> Paul Feldman, owner of the Maybrick Ripper Diary video rights and leading researcher into their history. Well, Mr. Feldman still has more disclosures to unveil, which he'll do next time. Till then, from me, Bob Azurdia, it's Cheerio, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye now. the Azuria interview. Here's Bob Azuria. Hello again, Bob Azuria here, and with the London-based Paul Feldman having discovered the existence of many descendants of Florence Maybrick around the country, his case in favour of the so-called James Maybrick Jack the Ripper diary being genuine has been strengthened. The amazing story, in which it's been claimed that a diary produced by a one-time Liverpool scrap metal merchant named Mike Barrett had been written by the Victorian murder victim James Maybrick, in which he confessed to being Jack the Ripper, the amazing story has taken many turns. Now, however, Anne Graham, former wife of Mike Barrett, has admitted that she'd known for years about the diary's existence and that she's actually the great-great-granddaughter of Florence Maybrick, who was convicted at Liverpool of her husband's murder in 1889. Further, her late father, Billy Graham, revealed to Paul Feldman that he knew about the diary and his grandmother, Florence Maybrick. And Mr Feldman has subjected the diary to many forensic tests as to its age, on the paper, the ink, the handwriting, the language, all passing the tests of time. But now he wishes to see the story through to as satisfactory a conclusion as possible. And he's working with members of the Maybrick family around the country. Paul, do any members of the Maybrick family have any further written proof or documents which would help confirm or substantiate the diary in any way? Well, one of the most astonishing things has been... Um, yes, we do have found something. I'll come on to that in a moment. One of the most astonishing things we found, and, and this is Brian Maybrick, who is still alive, he is... His grandfather was James's first cousin. He actually said, when he was first approached by Shirley Harrison, who wrote the paperback, Shirley asked him if he had any correspondence from, from that side of the family. And he said no. And he realised that was actually rather strange, because I am now in possession, he has kindly lent me for research purposes, thousands of letters and postcards written from one Maybrick to the other. But anything from that side of the family does not exist. It's gone. It's vanished. Um, and Brian Maybrick has, has, has said quite clearly, in his opinion, there was a family cover-up. There is no doubt about it in his mind. Everything seems to have vanished. A long time ago. A long time ago has vanished from that side of the family. Is there any suggestion that the, the Chandler line or the Graham line had been started whilst Florence was still married to... No, 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 no. Florence... Florence had an affair with a man in 1879. We do believe we know who that man is. So not Briley? No, it isn't. This is, she met Briley uh, some ten years later. Um, 1879 was two years before she met James. She was only uh, 16 years old at the time, there or thereabout. It was before she even met James Maybrick. The illegitimate child was born before she met James Maybrick. It was born 18 months before she met James Maybrick. We, she left England in August 1879, uh, which was some seven months after the child was born. And to the best of our knowledge at this stage, when she returned in the summer of 1880, was that, that was the period she'd spent in America. But we've got, we can prove that she returned to America in August 1879 with her mother is from there, Liverpool. Is there any, any, any knowledge as to whether or not James knew about this existing illegitimate child of Florence's? Uh, there is nothing, there is no um, hard evidence that James knew about this particular thing, but there are several letters 
which unfortunately are only in text form rather than a handwriting form, that he wrote to a to the Baroness, that is Florence's mother's solicitor, um, in the early part of his marriage to Florence, claiming that the Baroness had not told him the whole truth about Florence, and whatever he hadn't been told resulted in James cutting off any financial remuneration to the Baroness. So whatever it is would appear to be pretty serious. And could, at that time, in the age very much of macho Victorian man, despite his own proclivities, have helped his own attitude towards women generally, maybe? I think what I found extraordinary was that the motive... What, what we know is that Maybrick was a habitual user of drugs for 17 years. And maybe. a womanizer. And a womanizer, and uh, he attended brothels. Um, the, the, the extraordinary thing is that, that one of the, you know, the, the, the profile that used to be put out about who the Jack Ripper would be actually fits James Maybrick. Now, I'll, I'll hold it there because everyone will shout back at me and say, well, hang on a minute. He was a successful businessman, and successful businessmen aren't normally um, of, of that ilk. But I say, how do you measure success? How do you measure success? How does the audience measure success? I think people measure success compared to those around them. Um, if you are one of, uh, uh, if your brother and you, one goes out and earns a million pound a year, and the other one's earning a hundred thousand pound a year, compared to most, the £100,000 a year earner is very wealthy, but he will see himself as a failure compared to his brother. Now, I will give you this piece of fact. In 1861, we have got the census for the family. You will find that Michael Maybrick was, and Michael Maybrick was six years, I believe, his junior. He was a professor of music. Thomas, his younger brother, was a director of a packing company. Edwin, who was only 20, was a cotton merchant. James, who was the eldest of the four, was a clerk. How would James have perceived himself in relation to his younger brothers? Inadequate. But equally, the phraseology, some of the words used in the diary, could be explained if Maybrick knew about this earlier child of Florence's by his repeated use of the word the whore, or, the, or, or describing her in these these what, terms. Absolutely. Um, what, what we do know and, and can prove through documents that we have picked up in Wyoming University, and, and, and I cannot wait to see the faces of some of the critics of this document once they see what we have, but we have documents written by James Maybrick's best friend um, to another of James Maybrick's best friend. It is clear if you, and I suggest everybody read the diary again very carefully, the hallmaster referred to at the beginning of the diary is not really, as has been assumed, um, the second hallmaster uh, that he refers to around about New Year's Eve, around about the end of Christmas, that is really. Um, the earlier hallmaster um, was not. I will not reveal it yet who it was, but it is not him. But you, you have a name. Have, oh, yes, we do. You have a name. Yes, we do. Obviously, you are completely convinced of the veracity, then, of the diary, Paul. What about the earlier evidence that there were diaries being hawked around as early as 1889? I think that you've even found this. That's absolutely correct. There's an article in the Liverpool Echo. Once again, um... I believe that the main critics of this diary have been Jack the Ripper authors. Uh, authors that have written about Jack the Ripper. I ask the audience to consider this. If you've written two, three books about a particular subject and said, well, he's Jack the Ripper, and very early on in this investigation, um, several people said, oh, it's a forgery, it's a modern forgery, oh, it's a forgery, it has to be a forgery, it's too good to be true. Is that really a responsible approach by historians is that the correct way in which the reaction should have viewed by the press when this had, had not even been published when the book hadn't even been published shouldn't the response have been 
Well, it is fairly remarkable and, and clearly needs some investigation. It may take a considerable amount of time um, before we find out whether it is true or not, but we will work towards establishing it. No, instead, anyone that had written a book saying, I believe Jack Ripper to be so-and-so, immediately said, this is a forgery. Well, I don't think, I don't know whether they had much choice, but if they had integrity, then they had a choice. We have, I think, very little work has been done by the antagonists of the diary on Maybrick, on Florence, on James, and on the background to that case, which is precisely where we have um, uh, uh, directed our material. Now, I, I will try and sum up by giving you two or three little pieces. In the Liverpool Echo in 1889, and I'm not going to give the satisfaction to the antagonists of um, giving them the date, because I'm going to make them go out and look for it themselves. They will, but uh, uh, as you can see, I have it right here in front of me. And it was after the trial, of course. It was absolutely after the trial. Um, I'll read it to you. Mr. Stuart Cumberland questioned us to the statement in his paper about Mrs. Maybrick's diary having been offered for sale to a London publisher said that he expected the diary would come into his own hands. If it did, he would certainly publish it if he thought it to be authentic. This is Mrs. Maybrick's diary. It says Mrs. Maybrick's diary, but wait a moment. And if he did not, the world would denounce the imposter who was endeavouring to pass it off as authentic. The diary, which was in three small volumes, tied together with a blue silken cord, was taken by a gentleman who declined to give his name to... Mrs. Um, Trisler and Co. Ludgate Circus Publishers. It goes on to say, however, nothing has since been heard of the diary, so it is probable that the latter suggestion was the one adopted and that the Baroness, Florence's mother, now pos possesses her unhappy daughter's diary, which will therefore never see the light. In the article, it describes the diary as being in three parts and in three different types of handwriting. The first part about Mrs. Maybrick's childhood, the second those of her girlhood, her teenage life, and the third of her married life. Now this is a third hand report and I accept that. I ask, is it possible that these diaries are precisely what we have? And that they are being described as Mrs. Maybrick's because they are about her as this one is? And does this explain that what we actually have is one-sixth of the diary and the two-and-a-half volumes, or the two-and-a-half bits that are missing, are because they are Mrs. Maybrick's, and be, uh, about Mrs. Maybrick, and because they, as I believe, they've come down through Florence, is precisely why the information misses, is missing, and why those pages have been cut out, because that gives the background to Florence's indiscretions, let's put it that way. I will call out a couple of other little bits that I think are vitally important. Innocuous things, and what appear to be unimportant things in the diary. On the very first page, I think you will find that Maybrick has written words to the effect of, I took refreshment at the post house, it was there I decided, London it shall be. A little bit further on it says, after all, uh, do I not have a legitimate reason for going there? I have a letter in front of me, dated 1889, addressed to the Right Honourable Henry Matthews at the Home Office. Dear Sir, though you are now no doubt more than tired of the unfortunate Maybrick affair, permit me, as one of the late Mr. Maybrick's most intimate friends, brackets, he was my partner in Liverpool up to 1875, and continued to do my London firm's business day he died. Certainly seems a legitimate reason to go into London for me. If anyone would like to check the address that Mr. Witt wrote from, this is a man called Gustav Witt, Gustav Andrea, uh, uh, Andrea Witt. It is 4 Cullum Street, London EC. You will find that that is right on the border of the Minories, which was one of the famous Liverpool letters referred to, was, beware I shall be at work in the Minories. Maybe this was another of Maybrick's jokes, but it was right on the border of Whitechapel. Um, I find it frustrating that 
Various authors have written excellent books recently on the Ripper. Mr. Sugden wrote an excellent book on the Ripper. But his method in trying to dismiss the diary is flippant, it is unfair, and it is imbalanced. It gives one side of the story and one side of the story only. One tiny little thing, well, that proves it's a fake. Mr. Roger Wilkes said, um, well, it proves it's a fake because the post house didn't exist in Liverpool in 1889, as Shirley Harrison said it did. Shirley is the first to acknowledge she made a mistake, but it doesn't dismiss the diary because the person that wrote the diary did not say the post house was in Cumberland Street. He simply said, I took refreshment at the post house. It was there I decided, London it shall be. We'll have to wait until we publish our book to find out where the post house was, but yes, it did exist. Could have been at the Angel, perhaps. I know where it is, so I won't comment. <laughs> um, but, again, we found out very recently that uh, Mr. Harris, who is um, probably the foremost voice in trying to dismiss this diary as a hoax, gave up on trying to disprove it historically and moved to science, which is the very test that Stuart Evans quotes in The Lodger. And that they had found chlorocetamide in the diary, um, having taken ink spots from America instead of directly from the diary, um, and, 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 and that proved that that was a modern preservative, um, and therefore that was fake. Mr. Evans, unfortunately, and Mr. Ganey, unfortunately, because I think their work is absolutely first class, and it's a damn good book, doesn't tell you that following that, there was a report done by Leeds University, and I will quote from Lee's University's response to AFI, who says, uh, to, to Melvin Harris, and it says, does he not realise that the levels claimed to be detected are in layman's terms, point, naught, 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 one, four, five of a gram. I feel that so-called proven anti-contamination procedure may just leave this ultra-tiny amount of chlorocetamide attached to the column. The work that had been done by uh, AFI, which is referred to by Stuart Heavens, had previously done a test on the chlorocetamide itself. That is the response that I've read out, is a response from Leeds University. What I will say is this. Any modern preservative linked with chlorocetamide would have a damn sight more than 0.0000145 or however it's absolutely nine zeros in case I got it wrong. Furthermore, and this is something came to us recently, much to the dismay of some of the experts in this country, it has been discovered that chlorocetamide, the very thing that has been claimed to be the reason why the diaries are fake, was actually first used in 1857, furthermore in 1871, and furthermore in 1874. They, uh, if anyone had done their research properly, they would have found that. Nothing has been found to dismiss this document. Not one piece of historical evidence, only people's interpretation of it. They are simply, sooner or later, going to have to accept the truth. Paul, we haven't even touched on other evidence which you've unearthed, such as a crucifix, such as the watch, which we haven't really talked about at all, but the provenance for which seems to get better and better, and about the book and the film. You've got a book coming out early next spring. There's also the likelihood of this film, apparently, with Anthony Hopkins. That is still in the offing. Uh, we spoke, we, we heard yesterday that... that um a rumour has been spread that Anthony Hopkins has pulled out of the movie. We spoke yesterday to Anthony Hopkins' uh, uh, manager, who he said, well, if he has, I don't know about it. Um, every actor, every Hollywood actor, uh, will sign a deal subject to script approval. As far as I'm aware, the, the rewrite of the scripts, and, and the, the first one is being rewritten. It's who who written by? Uh, it's been written by a gentleman that wrote The Elephant Man. Um, it's been directed by William Friedkin, who, who did The French Connection and The Exorcist. Um, as far as I'm aware, it hasn't pulled out. Um, whether he has, whether he hasn't, 
I, I don't think is vitally important one way or the other at this stage. Oh, not to uh, the proving or otherwise of the diary, but as right. a matter of continuing interest. That's right. I, I, I have no doubt that when the movie is made by New Line, who are a first-class company... And the film is certainly going to be made. Oh, the, the, without doubt. The whether it's Hopkins made. or not. Whether it's Hopkins or not. Yeah. Whether it happens now, whether it happens next year, they will get it right. They won't just bung out a film for the sake of bunging out a film. And in the meantime, you are going to bring out, I believe, another video. We, we have interviewed on video the illegitimate descendants of James Maybrick and Florence Maybrick. We believe that those interviews are of such historical importance um, and we believe that when the public see these people, these quite ordinary people, they are either going to have to say, well, how big is this conspiracy getting now? Um, have we got that three, two, how many people are involved with this? I mean, quite the, the, the idea of modern uh, forgery, if one actually sits down and thinks about it, is quite preposterous. Um, Tony Devo thinks, well, you know, I'll die just before this comes out, and then Billy Graham says, well, I'll give my story, and then I'll drop dead. Um, and I mean, this is absolute nonsense. And when people actually think what a modern forgery means, they will realise, forget it, I've been working on this for three years, with four full-time researchers and many other part-time researchers. I have invested over £150,000 in research material. Now, that means that if this had been fake, they'd have had to do the same thing. And at any point, and at any point, they may have discovered, oh, maybe it's in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's pretty much of a silly thing to embark on in the first place, but no one has thought about that. You will hope to recoup all that and uh, a good deal more, I imagine. I would be very happy, and I have got to the point of my life where I have been angry, very angry, at the flippancy and disappointed at the way that people have approached this. I know that Mike didn't make it easier with his confession. I know that if one read and bothered to read what his solicitor said and read through the lines and read carefully, they would have seen what was going on. Mike was bitter about his breakup with his wife. I can understand that. I can understand his pain. I know the man, and as much as he has given me a lot of grief, I like him, I feel sorry for him, and I know that he's done wrong things, but in his mind, it's because he adores his wife, his ex-wife, he adores his children, and cannot come to terms with the fact that they are no longer there. And that would all affect us in different ways. It would affect you one way, it would affect me another, um, it, it, it would affect other people. He is absolutely correct and was correct when I heard him yesterday in saying <laughs> that it's a curse and it's, it, 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 so many people uh, have been affected by it. I actually do not know of the people that are working very closely with it. Anybody whose lives are similar to what they were when they started, they're not. My marriage has broken up too. Um, As a result of you're yes, investigating I'm not saying, the time you've I'm not saying it was solely on it. Um, I, no one can say that. There are a lot of reasons for, for, for a lot of relationships breaking up or staying together. But most certainly the... The, the added pressure. The, the, the added pressure, the work that I put into it, the amount of hours that I dedicated to it. Um, I, there's no question that I neglected my family and I, 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 I have no qualms in... in um, uh, admitting that I wasn't there uh, and when I was there I had Paul Begg staring at me or Keith Skinner staring at me or Martin Howell staring at me and we were debating the Jack the Ripper till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning yeah it isn't going to lead to, to a very conducive way of living people have died um, Billy Graham died the in fact, the night that Anne Graham was meeting the illegitimate Maybricks in Peterborough, which we, we've got many pictures of, which we did some time ago. And that, after nursing her father for many, many years, the night he had to die, she wasn't there. And, 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 and I felt very guilty about that. Um, her great, her, 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 
father's stepsister, just as we were arranging to go up and film her, died. You'd think these people are dying out of convenience. That was actually, someone had the audacity to suggest that. And I find this very sad. This is real documents, and this is an important piece of history, and an important document that psychologists, doctors, will be able to use. And people have to start saying, hey guys, you're out of order when you dismiss this. One final question, if I may, Paul. That's on the crucifix. The crucifix. Um, this was actually reported in the, the Sunday Telegraph, oh, it must have been ten months ago. And um, whether anything whether anything else exists in the family. Um, and all she said was that when she opened this trunk and she saw the diary for the first time in 68, with it was a crucifix. Now, there was also... Uh, um, about six inches in length. It's a, uh, I think it's about four. About four inches in length. Four. A small... Uh, no, not, a, not a large crucifix to hang on, and on the wall. she didn't know whether it was with the diary or not. It was simply on top of it. Um, but there was, for example, some tro tropical uh, clothing in there, which wasn't, and we know wasn't anything to do with it. So no one is trying to say, will it... Okay. We didn't know whether it was or wasn't. We took it to Sotheby's, who dated it at just over 100 years old, which opened our eyes. We thought that maybe it had something to do with Florence being in, in the convent in Cornwall when she came out of prison, Truro, and we, we sent the picture down to Cornwall, and they came out and said, nope, <coughs> sorry folks, but this isn't the one. Now, when we were researching, we were able to get Stephen Knight, who wrote a book called for the Final Solution, 76, I believe. And he too now has died. He too died. He died of, of a brain hemorrhage when he was in his early 30s. Um, his family were kind enough to, to allow us to have access to his complete collection. And he, he'd done a lot of work on, on the subject, and he found out that Mary Kelly had stayed in a convent at the end of Whitechapel. Mary Kelly being one the of last the, the last of the victims um, of the it, Ripper. It, well, it wasn't the last, last but one, according to the diary, but certainly the last known Ripper victim. And what we, what we discovered was quite extraordinary. There, he had this brochure of the convent, and on the front of the brochure, which I know I've shown you today, there's a picture of a nun holding the crucifix. And that crucifix looked to me to be remarkably similar to the one that Anne Graham had. And we took it directly to the convent. We saw the sister, and yes, it is the same as the crucifix used in that convent at that time. This is a Dominican order, too. Correct. Now, we do not know, um, and we were told that it may not be the only convent that used that crucifix. But to date, we have not found another one. Now, whether that was taken by Maybrick when he left the room of Mary Kelly, I don't know. But it might have been, and we have nothing to prove otherwise. Um, certainly the dating fix, fixes, and it is pretty extraordinary that of all the convents that we have been to, it does meet that one. Paul Feldman, producer of the forthcoming Jack the Ripper James Maybrick Diary video, and with still more secrets to reveal. For example, about the truth of the watch purchased in Wallasey by Albert Johnson, on which were engraved the initials of James Maybrick, plus the scratched initials of all the Ripper's victims, and the words, I am Jack. The story goes on and on. But for the moment, that's where we leave it, though I'm convinced now that the diary really was written by James Maybrick of Battlecrease House, Riversdale Road, Egberth in Liverpool, and that he was also Jack the Ripper. Whether he was really murdered by Florence, despite the jury's verdict, well, that's another mystery for another time. Till next time, though, from me, Bob Azerdia, it's Cheerio, and 
I'll see you soon. Bye-bye now. Bob Azaria was talking to the film and video producer Paul Feldman. And that was Paul Feldman on BBC Radio Merseyside in October 1995. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you'll find over 160 roundtable discussions, author interviews, conference presentations, Whitechapel Society meetings and archive tapes all about Jack the Ripper, East End history and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast.